I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, an Anawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yard. I'm Thomas Phillips. Victoria's coastlines are receding, inland waterways are flooding more frequently, and things are only expected to get worse. This week, we're bringing you two more interviews about the citizens' environmental reporting. One about Gippsland abandoning fossil fuels in the face of a coastal climate crisis. Another about the beachside suburbs of Port Phillip unprepared for rising seas. The articles are part of a special series called Neighbourhood Watch, which puts a local spotlight on burning issues. Neighbourhood Watch is a collaboration between the Citizens Student Reporters and Right Now, a not-for-profit online magazine focused on human rights. First up, my interview with Amelia Costigan about her reporting on Gippsland. A resource-rich region on Victoria's eastern coast, Gippsland has long been the powerhouse of the state's industrial history. But with raging bushfires followed by relentless flooding in recent years, experts say it's time for the region to abandon its culture of coal and prepare for a climate emergency. I started by asking Amelia how the region has already been affected by climate change. I think the 2019-2020 Black Summer fires was what really sparked our interest in Gippsland as a really climate vulnerable area. 400 houses were lost during those fires, four people died, I think it was a million hectares of land was lost. But we've also seen massive flooding in recent years. We spoke to one farmer whose property has been flooded 10 times in the last two years, a massive dairy farm where he's lost heaps of cattle and insurance doesn't cover livestock loss and that kind of thing. It was really devastating to speak to people who were at the coalface of that problem and but don't have any plans to leave. You know, they want to stick it out and that's going to be really difficult for them. How are these extreme weather events affecting insurance premiums in the region? Well, yeah, our focus was on how climate change will impact home insurance. It's something that's kind of not well understood, we felt. You know, the Climate Council says that One in 25 homes will be uninsurable in the next 10 years due to climate change. And that could be because of exposure to floods and fires, to, you know, erosion creeping into your property, to your house just not being stable enough to withstand really high heat, those kind of things. And that means your premiums will increase. And for some people, those premiums will just be unaffordable. You know, we saw people in Lismore after the floods last year um, having insurance premiums of like $50,000, just insane amounts that people obviously aren't going to pay for. And it means that they'll be left with uninsured houses. And in the event of a disaster, they'll be effectively left homeless. It's this really sinister relationship between yeah insurance companies and homeowners that's not well understood, but really needs to be like regulated better. And the government needs to step in because, yeah, we're kind of facing a situation where climate-prone houses will become more affordable because they're in danger and so lower-income families will probably be attracted to those areas and then could 
potentially be facing homelessness and financial ruin in the event of a flood. So as you mentioned, the situation is expected to get a lot worse in Gippsland. Can you talk a bit about some of the Victorian government's projections about what's expected to happen in the coming years? It's, you know, kind of a similar story to a lot of places in Australia. Increased floods, increased fires, less frost, more heat-related deaths. And because of that, stress on health services, stress on housing, damage to beautiful tourist sites like Wilson's Prom in Gippsland and because of that, the local economy. Kind of a specific example of that that we looked at in this article was Locksport, which is a tiny little tourist town in Gippsland where erosion is creeping into the foreshore already. People are already losing their you know, beachfront properties, walkways have been destroyed. And there's been a local report into erosion in Locksport that found 45 houses will be partially or fully inundated by floodwaters by 2050. And that's yeah quite a big portion of the town. So we saw that as yeah a microcosm of what's going to happen to the rest of Gippsland, which is really quite extreme, affects fairly soon. Obviously, Gippsland's such a massive region. There's multiple towns like Venus Bay and Locksport where there's only one road in and one road out. And that kind of sounds extreme, but it's just kind of the nature of living in a small coastal area and effectively during flood times, which happens throughout the year, people are trapped without medicine, yeah, access to food, access to emergency services. That's the reality for a lot of small coastal towns. It happened a few times last year to Venus Bay. And your article describes Gippsland as Victoria's energy capital. Can you talk a bit about the history and scale of the region's fossil fuel industry? Yeah, it's a super resource-rich area. It's long-powered Victoria for hundreds of years, and it still produces 85% of Victoria's electricity and 97% of Victoria's natural gas. So we rely on Gippsland massively for our energy. But yeah, as the push for renewables and moving away from coal and fossil fuels happens, power stations, coal stations are closing down around the region. Jobs are being lost. It's causing a little bit of a cultural schism, perhaps. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting time in Gippsland, I think, as people are embracing climate change and renewables, but also are really historically tied to that past. And yeah, I'm not sure there's been enough done to facilitate that um, transition. Yeah, you write about how a culture of coal has led to some climate change denial in the region. How is that impacting the uptake of climate change adaptation strategies? We heard some stories of people not wanting to have solar panels on their roofs because of the power of the coal industry in the region and cultural connections to coal. However, you know, the more we spoke to people, the more I think we realized it's not completely true to categorize this as a you know regressive region there's a lot of progressive thought and climate activism and people embracing climate strategies because yeah as we said the proliferation of natural disasters and really horrific events where properties being lost and lives are being lost people understand that they're at the coal face of it and they can't drag their feet but of course there is some cultural schisms and politically i think it's a bit of a political football in the region um, for some representatives and some people who are resistant to leaving coal behind, which makes sense given their history. So the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning has proposed some adaptation actions that could be used in Gippsland. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what some of these adaptation strategies are and how they might work? 
So the main climate adaptation strategy that we kept hearing about in the course of this investigation was planned retreat. That involves moving or abandoning assets basically in homes as part of a permanent relocation of a community out of harm's way. So away from a shoreline where flooding is inevitable or away from areas that are fire prone. And this is something we've seen Already in Australia happening in New South Wales, away from flood prone areas, it's something that's being considered in Lismore after the devastating floods last year. But it's a tricky thing to present to a community, this idea of completely yeah, abandoning your family home, somewhere you might have lived, your family might have been for decades or even hundreds of years. So it's not something that's on the agenda at the moment, we felt, but there are small kind of incremental changes happening, like refusing new construction in flood prone areas or no further residential subdivisions along coastal areas. So there are sort of baby steps towards climate adaptation and that eventual planned retreat that might have to happen. But people from the council, people from NGOs even that we spoke about, weren't ready to embrace that idea of planned retreat as it is such a kind of radical shift and something that, you know, wouldn't be popular with the community. That was Amelia Costigan. Next, my interview with Gideon Cohen about his reporting on Port Phillip. Just south of Melbourne CBD, Port Phillip's coast is lined with high-value properties sought after for their ocean views. Experts say the properties are at risk from rising sea levels, but inconsistent projections are obscuring the danger and confusing residents. I started by asking Gideon whether Port Phillips homeowners have been lulled into a false sense of security. It depends who you ask, because if you ask the council, they would argue that no one's being lulled into a false sense of security. I think the most alarming thing is just sort of the discrepancy between the figures being used between state government or council members versus what like insurance companies are saying. I think that's where there's like some camps that are using best case scenario figures and then some that are using sort of worst case scenario figures. And the difference in between what's going to happen based on those figures and the modeling is huge. It could be like less than 1% of property being affected versus entire suburbs being flooded. And that should be relevant information that everyone should know about where they're living. Can you explain what storm surges are and how they could lead to one of these worst case scenarios? So a storm surge occurs when there's a massive storm or a cyclone and it causes the mean sea level to then increase by meters higher and you end up with storm tides that are enormous and they can flood suburbs sort of kilometers inland. And you write about how these risks aren't being taken into account with new construction and redevelopments in the region. Can you tell listeners a bit more about this problem? Yeah, so that's a redevelopment that's happening in Fisherman's Bend, and it's meant to be this residential and working area. I think Melbourne University is also building a campus on it as well. And when we spoke to David Spratt, who's part of Breakthrough, he argued that no appropriate sort of consideration of sea level rises had gone into the planning of that, whereas I'm sure the people who are developing it would say that they've looked at the relevant data. But he sent through a sort of coastal risk assessment model that showed what the flooding would look like in the worst possible case scenario. And it was two metres of sea level rise with a one metre sea level surge. But then alternatively, there was an expert who said that that's very unlikely. But it's all just relevant information because if you're going to build a brand new redevelopment that's going to cost 
millions of dollars, you should be, I think, assessing all relevant data and sort of planning for the worst rather than hoping for the best. And there's been some disagreement between the Victorian government and the local Port Phillip government about who's responsible for preparing for these risks, right? Yeah, it was similar when we were doing our research. Every time you try to ask a member of a council or try to reach someone, everyone sort of sort of volleys the topic to someone else or says that it's someone else's issue or that they can't give you a straight answer. And that's especially problematic for homeowners who are just trying to find out what is the risk that's going to happen long-term with their property. So it really depends on who you ask. And depending on who you ask, you're going to get a very different answer. And another property expert we spoke to said that like, what really needs to happen is more funding needs to go into the research. So despite all these risks, the price of coastal properties in the region haven't really been affected. Why is this? What we were being told is that still like real estate agents and also home buyers are just more interested in like the sea view than really like interested in like worrying about what's going to happen 20, 30 years down the track with their property. Everyone sort of gets sort of swept up in like how beautiful the area is, how beautiful the property is. And they don't really think very long term about whether it's like a good investment. You know, is this going to be a good house for you to leave behind for your family? Or is it going to be something that's completely uninsurable in 50 years? because it's just on a coastline that's been completely eroded. So whenever we'd reach out to real estate agents, like as if we were prospective buyers, they either just wouldn't answer the question about what the risk associated is, or they would just answer there is no risk. And then none of the real estate agent websites have any information about like how climate change is going to affect the areas that they're selling in. It mostly just seemed like they were ignorant of the facts. Like they don't really take it into, as a consideration. It's not something that's on their agenda. They're just looking at like what the perks are of living in the area. And it makes sense because there's no financial incentive for a real estate agent to sort of tell you what the worst possible thing that's going to happen when you buy real estate is in that area. And how do the locals you spoke to feel about this impending crisis? What's the mood like in Port Phillip? Yeah, it depends on who you ask because some residents who are in their like 60s just sort of seem like it's not really something that's going to affect their generation. It seems like something that's going to be long-term a problem but not really something that's going to affect their day-to-day or affect their property whereas other people we met who are activists in their like 60s and 70s and local residents have been i think over a decade now have been campaigning to sort of have meaningful discussions and change in the area and sort of more radical action on climate change and they're part of like activist groups in the area and they're sort of campaigning to the local council and to like state politicians trying to say that this is a pressing matter it's a very like serious existential threat that's not being taken seriously and that they don't think the figures that are being reported are accurate or reflecting the reality of what's actually going to happen. That was Gideon Cohen. A massive thank you to reporters Amelia Costigan, Hannah Hamoud, Anne Karani, Gideon Cohen, Pauline Fevrier, and Hannah Fandenbokhada. You can read their Neighbourhood Watch reporting in The Citizen and right now. The Yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week. <laughs>